this week's episode of Ask the RD with your hosts Laura Schoenfeld and Kelsey Mark Steiner, staff nutritionist at chriscresser.com. Laura is a registered dietitian with a master's degree in public health, and Kelsey is a registered dietitian with a master's degree in human nutrition and functional medicine. Laura and Kelsey will be answering your nutrition-related questions on the show. So remember to submit your questions through the online submission link at chriscresser.com. Before Laura and Kelsey come on the show, I want to remind you that this is just general advice and should not be used in place of medical advice from a licensed professional. Now let's begin. Hi everyone, welcome to Ask the RD. I'm Laura Schoenfeld and on the other end of the line is Kelsey Marksteiner. How are you doing today, Kelsey? Doing well, how are you, Laura? Good, we had a 78 degree high in Raleigh yesterday, so that was kind of amazing. <laughs> Lucky, we had like 50s here and I thought that was amazing, so yeah. you're, you're doing better than me. Yeah, we're dropping into the 40s tomorrow though, so it was a short-lived experience. But, yeah, um, okay, that's a pretty big difference. <laughs> I know, it's kind of crazy, but... Uh, we're getting there slowly but surely, so I'm looking forward to the weather warming up and being able to oh, spend some more too. time outside and not be cooped up inside all the time. But, I agree. Um, yeah, I bet you guys are – are you guys getting snow soon again? Um, we're getting rain today. Oh, okay. um, I, don't think there, I don't think there's supposed to be much snow coming up, but let's. I, I don't pay too much attention to the weather except when it's nice out. Right, so. right. So <laughs> we'll ho see. hopefully no more snow for you guys. But, right. Uh, yeah, I'm – I mean, I'm quite the outdoors person myself, so when it's, it's bad weather, it kind of starts to get draining on me, so I'm looking oh, yeah. forward to it warming up. Yep, ready for spring, for sure. Definitely. Okay, well, so we have two questions today, and the first question is for Kelsey. Kelsey, you ready? I am. Okay, so this one is from a listener who asks... I would like to know more about cravings. I cook all of my meals from scratch at home using the best ingredients I can find, and I'm following paleo, Weston Price, perfect health diet type foods. My husband, however, gets cravings for sweet things after meals, i.e. when he is not hungry, and buys himself processed foods like cakes, chocolate, biscuits, etc., and ends up eating more than one portion at a time when he has them at home. Why does he get these cravings after meals He's already eating full-fat, nutritious meals with carbs. All right. Thank you for that great question. Um, I think it's pretty clear, probably, Laura, you, you realize this too, that a lot of people deal with cravings on a daily basis, um, specifically you know, when they're first starting, but people deal with it even years after they've been on a paleo-type diet. So I'm really glad that this issue was brought up by our listeners, and we'll dive into that now. So when we're talking cravings, um, there can be a couple things going on. And, you know, I'm kind of going to walk through this problem as if I don't know some of the background from this person. And, but, you know, just to give everyone out there who might be dealing with cravings some, some idea of what they might be able to do. Um, but then we'll kind of go a little bit deeper and talk about some things that might be going on in this particular situation, too. So first of all, um, and this is usually the first thing I look at when I hear that someone's having cravings, it can be that they're simply not eating enough calories overall. And I see this all the time with my clients. You know, they tell me that they're getting these cravings for sweet or salty or, you know, any kind of food after their meals or in the afternoon, and they just can't figure out why. And sometimes they don't even have to feel hungry necessarily, though usually they'll, you know, they might be starting to feel hungry when they're getting these cravings. 
So one of the first things I look at if I'm wondering about this is, you know, how much they're eating overall. And more often than not, their intake, it really just doesn't quite match how they're living their lives, like how active they are. Um, and generally, it'll just seem a little bit low to me. So that's what we address first. Um, and when they end up increasing their overall caloric intake during meals, that definitely can help reduce some of those cravings. So this woman's husband may just not be getting enough calories, um, though I think that that's maybe the least likely problem that's going on here since she says um, that you know he's not hungry when he's eating these things. But it's a pretty common thing that, that um, tends to happen, especially if a couple is eating at home together because you know, I know with my boyfriend and I, like we just tend to make the same size portion meals a lot of the time, even though we're both very different people. We have different calorie um, requirements and, you know, just generally we live our life a little bit differently. But it's pretty common for people to just eat the same amount of food as the other person just because, you know, when you're making two meals, you just tend to make it that way with the same portion sizes. So if, you know, he's eating those meals with you and perhaps, you know, he's not getting enough calories when you're eating together, his body might just need to make up that caloric difference. And the way it chooses to do that is to give him cravings for high calorie foods like sweets. So that's definitely one of the first things that comes to mind when I'm hearing about someone who's got some craving issues. Um, but it doesn't sound like this is maybe the most likely um, for this person just because he's, he's not necessarily hungry when he's eating these things. So we'll dive into some other potential issues too. So once we've determined that the caloric intake is in the right range, so perhaps for this person, we'll just assume that it's in the right range. If the cravings persist, then I start to look at macronutrient ratios. Now, most people with significant cravings are often restricting at least one of their macronutrients. And that not only tends to reduce their calorie intake, but can also lead to cravings of many different kinds of foods just as the body, you know, it, it's just looking for something when we're restricted somewhat. Now, it sounds like this person is eating plenty of fat and carbohydrates. Um, and usually, yeah, those are the first main issues for someone who's eating a paleo type diet that I would worry about um, them restricting. Because usually, you know, they'll either forget to add in the fat when they switch from a standard American diet, because, you know, that tends to be fairly low fat, or we just think about not eating fat that's so ingrained in our mind um, that when they switch to a paleo diet, some people just don't tend to add in the fat when they really should. Or on the other side of that, they could go crazy with the carb restriction um, since that's usually how a lot of people kind of hear about paleo is that, that it's a restricted carb diet. So if anyone with cravings out there, you know, listening and you feel like you fall into either of those categories, that you're either restricting carbs or you're restricting fat, even if it's by accident, um, try increasing the macronutrient that you're restricting with healthy real food choices and see if that helps. Now, you know, just because fat and carbs usually tend to be the issues with paleo eaters, that's not to say that I don't see my fair share of people who aren't eating enough protein. So since cravings can often be a sign of blood sugar imbalance sometimes, it's no surprise that eating extra protein can help um, reduce cravings since protein stabilizes blood sugar. And it's not uncommon to see those with cravings eating fairly small portions of protein at each meal. So, it's, so you know, if everything else is looking good in your diet, but your protein intake is on the lower side of things, definitely try increasing that. And 
that might be what is more likely to be the case for this person. You know, it sounds like they're eating a good amount of everything else, you know, eating full fat, eating some carbs, but um, I didn't hear anything about the protein. So I would, you know, obviously, since I don't know everything about this person's diet, I would probably want to see their food diary or something like that, just seeing what the protein serving sizes look like. So those are my food related answers to this question. But the, you know, another thing I want to mention is that the mind body connection plays a really big part here. And if you've tried all the food related things I've mentioned, and you're still having a lot of trouble kicking those cravings, it's likely that, you know, there's some amount of a psychological component to them for you. Now, Mind-body activities help us to cultivate awareness, and this can be especially helpful if you feel like you're someone who eats very mindlessly and when you're truly not even hungry, and these activities can also reduce stress, which absolutely can increase the amount we eat. I um, mean, you know, they've done studies on this where people just tend to eat a lot more when they're stressed out. So these kind of activities include things like deep breathing, meditation, yoga, um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, Tai Chi, there's a lot of different options out there. So I would suggest finding something that you enjoy doing and keep doing it because the benefits of mind-body activities amplify over time the longer you practice them. So keeping up with it and kind of having a daily practice, even if it's, you know, one minute a day is really, really important versus like doing an hour of meditation once a week or something like that. So even if you don't feel like you're a particularly stressed out person, these activities can really help reduce cravings. So I would I would encourage you to really try them even if you are, you know, kind of averse to them. And especially for people who are averse to them, I would even more strongly recommend that you do it because it's usually the people who don't want to do them the most that they, they will benefit the most. So definitely, um, you know, get a mind-body activity in your schedule. I suggest them to all of my patients, whether they have cravings or not, because they're so important to overall health. And so if you're not already practicing one of them, it's definitely time to start. Hopefully that helps to answer this question. I think, you know, there are definitely a lot of food-related answers to it, but for a lot of people, if they don't, you know, work on that mind-body connection too, Sometimes they don't get over the cravings. So if you tried everything food-related, you can't, really can't think of anything else, but you've been putting off dealing with that mind-body connection, even if you don't feel like it's a necessarily psychological issue, I would still you know, incorporate those into your life, the mind-body activities, because not only you know, they're great for overall health, but they should really help your cravings as well. Yeah, that's a really good uh, point to make because I think a lot of times people don't necessarily think about the non-food related issues and, um, you know, the mindfulness when it comes to eating can definitely change how you, how you perceive being full after a meal and, you know, feeling mm -hmm. like you're satisfied, even if it's just a, a mental fullness rather than an actual physical fullness because sometimes it doesn't matter how full people are in their bellies, they might still feel like they're mentally craving more. Um, and I do think it's important to kind of talk about the issue with blood sugar control, because I mean, I don't know if this, if this man that this woman is talking about is, you know, 30 years old and a crossfitter, or if he's right. 60 years old and somewhat overweight or, you know, anywhere in between. So if, if he has some level of blood sugar issues where he's having kind of a, a rise or dip 
in blood sugar. So those those dips can actually lead people to feel cravings for sweet foods just because, you know, the body's looking for an external source of glucose. So like you said, the, the eating more protein can definitely help with blood sugar control. Um, also, there's, I mean, there are some supplements or nutrients that can make a difference. I'm not going to get into details, but there are various amino acids that are helpful. There are some, mm-hmm. some things like chromium I know is supposed to help with blood sugar control in people who, um, you know, are struggling with that as an issue. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, my, my thought would be if the person is eating a pretty uh, balanced meal and also eating enough calories and eating a decent amount of protein, then we might think about, you know, adding a couple of helpful supplements in that can help with with cravings related to blood sugar issues and yeah probably definitely you know checking out the blood sugar level is is worth it if you've never checked that before right um you know maybe just grabbing a a glucose monitor and i know chris has a um an article about this on his site that we can link to just about getting an idea of what your blood sugar level looks like you know before after a meal all that great stuff and just seeing if you're kind of on the right track there yeah i think he's got some information about you know buying a glucometer and using it to determine if your blood sugar is dropping after meals because there are some people that have reactive hypoglycemia which means after you eat your blood sugar drops so it's perfectly reasonable that this man could be dealing with that. And if he's getting that low blood sugar after a meal, then that's when he's going to actually want the the sugar and, you know, the sweets. And I mean, if it is simply a mental, like an attachment to sweet foods, there are some programs that can help with that. So I know Diane San Filippo has the, the 21 day sugar detox, which, um, I've heard a lot of people have had success with that as far as getting over the mental cravings for for sugary foods. So, um, and I, the one thing is, is, and this is going to sound kind of weird, but the fact that it's the wife writing in about the husband makes me a little concerned just because I wouldn't necessarily want to work with somebody unless they were interested in making changes. So, you know, this, this man, if he, if he wants to make a change, then there's a lot of stuff he could do to improve his, um, you know, his satiety and his ability to kind of turn down these unnecessary extra processed foods. But if it's kind of like his wife is forcing him into a diet that he's not interested in, and I'm not saying that's what ha- what's happening, but it's a fairly common occurrence that one partner is interested in nutrition and the other one's not. And, you know, you obviously care about the person and you want them to be healthy, but if they're not interested, then it's not necessarily going to be something that they're willing to make significant changes with. And a lot of these recommendations we're making could potentially be significant if the person is, you know, completely disinterested. And it's also possible that, you know, he's, if he's going out and buying these processed foods and eating them when he's not hungry, it could also just be that he is, you know, wanting to have some level of control over his diet. And I know that sounds again, a little ridiculous, but, um, you know, this is the same thing for children, but also if, if it's somebody who's kind of being forced into something they're not on board with, then they might be doing it out of, you know, slight rebellion or, you know, just trying to have some level of control in their own diet. So, I mean, that's another thing to consider. I'm not, like I said, I'm not saying that this is this person's situation, but if that's an issue that you're dealing with, with your, with your husband or wife or your children, it could be that, um, you know, you might need to kind of, 
you know, cool off the, the, uh, nutrition intensity a little bit, just until they kind of get more on board with what you're trying to, you know, accomplish with your, the way your family eats. So it's definitely a, it's a, it's a difficult balance to strike. And I don't envy people who have significant others that are not interested in, you know, the nutrition and diet changes that the person has made. So, right. So yeah, provided, you know, maybe take that first step, ask yourself, is this person really interested in what, you know, we're trying to accomplish here? If not, maybe, you know, back off a little bit. And if so, then, um, you know, work with them to kind of go through all of these different things that we've mentioned. So making sure they're getting enough calories overall, um, you know, and that could particularly be in relation to if you guys are making meals together, making sure that they're getting more or, you know, more food than you are if they need more. Um, that's the first step. And then finding out if they're accidentally or purposefully restricting any particular macronutrients. Um, obviously, carbs and, and fat tend to be the first ones that someone coming from a standard American diet would be um, restricting, but protein definitely can be an issue. Um, and that's particularly it can particularly be become, become an issue when um, there's blood sugar imbalances. So checking your blood sugar if you haven't before to see if there's anything wrong there. And then finally, you know, if you've done all that and still having problems, you could really work on the mind-body connection by doing some, um, you know, meditation, yoga, that kind of thing. And also doing programs that help to, you know, cut the cravings. So like Diane Sanfilippo's 21-Day Sugar Detox. Great. Well, that, hopefully that's a good amount of recommendations for this person. I mean, it, it really does depend on what the person's issue is as far as what kind of changes they need to make. So did, mm -hmm. kind of doing a little bit of uh, research into what is actually at the root of the issue is important before you start trying to um, make changes. Definitely. All right. Are we ready to move on? Yeah, let's do it. All right. This one's for you. I have heard from other paleo gurus that eating more than a quarter pound of organ meat per week can actually cause a person to take in too many vitamins and minerals. Is this overdose of awful a real problem if you eat more than a quarter pound per week? All right, so I find this question to be kind of awesome and hilarious at the same time because I, I gotta say as a dietitian, this is rarely the issue that you would see in the normal <laughs> population. If anything, I usually struggle to get people to even eat, you know, one serving of liver a week, but I have had clients before that were eating lots and lots of liver and, you know, maybe not more than a quarter or half a pound a week, but it's certainly possible that somebody could be eating too much. So the question is, you know, is it a, really a problem if you're eating too much liver and possibly even, you know, how much is too much because somebody may say a quarter pound, somebody may say a pound, and it really just depends on the person's genetics and also just, um, you know, the general nutrients that are present and which ones we're concerned about. So for me, I would say that copper and vitamin A toxicity are the two biggest concerns you might have with eating too much liver. As far as the other organ meats, um, you know, there are some nutrients in those, in those items. And I'm not saying that they're not nutrient dense, but they're not usually as kind of, um, chock full of vitamins and minerals as liver is. Liver is one of the few foods out there that's really pretty high in a lot of nutrients in general. So liver is, I'm going to keep talking about liver. Um, I'm not really talking about things like, like kidneys or tongue or, um, or 
you know, tripe, which is the stomach. So a lot of those other awful pieces are not necessarily ones you have to worry about. So speaking of liver, um, like I said, copper and vitamin A toxicity is the main issue here. But as even as far as t- vitamin A toxicity goes, you'd really have to eat a lot of liver and pr- have pretty poor vitamin D status for that vitamin A toxicity to be an issue. So in general, signs of toxicity from vitamin A are associated with long-term consumption of vitamin A in excess of 10 times the RDA. So that ends up being around 25,000 to 33,000 international units per day. And that is what is in two ounces of liver. So this is, you know, these numbers are not taking into account the protective role of vitamin D against vitamin A toxicity. And there are studies that show that supplementing with vitamin D actually significantly increases the toxicity threshold of vitamin A. And Chris did write an article about the concerns over vitamin A toxicity. And he suggested that if you could eat, that you could eat 22 ounces of beef liver a day if you're adequately supplementing with vitamin D and you'd still be able to avoid vitamin A toxicity. So yeah, so I certainly would not recommend experimenting with that level of liver intake, but it does go to show you that your vitamin D status is really important in determining your risk for overdosing on vitamin A. So if your vitamin D level is below 30, I would be cautious about eating a lot of liver until you get those levels up to say around 35 or 40. Um, but certainly a couple of ounces a week shouldn't be an issue. And like I said, the, the established toxicity threshold is, ends up being two ounces per day long-term. So hypothetically you could eat 14 ounces a week and still stay under the toxicity threshold. So as I mentioned, the real concern I have over eating excessive amounts of liver is actually the risk for copper toxicity. So an ounce of beef liver contains 4,128 micrograms of copper, which is over four times the RDA of 900 micrograms. And if you have a normal-sized piece of liver, which that may be around three to four ounces, that means you'll be getting 12 to 16 times the RDA for copper and possibly even more depending on the size of the liver. And the upper limit for copper intake is 10,000 micrograms per day, which you'll reach that upper limit if you eat two and a half ounces of liver. So if you're eating more than two and a half ounces of liver on a daily basis, you may be putting yourself at risk for toxicity. Again, that works out to about 15 ounces a week. So maybe up to a pound a week is okay. And then once you start going over that, you're putting yourself at risk for copper toxicity. And Copper toxicity is pretty rare, and typically people that are eating a Western diet are actually getting very low levels of copper. So, you know, copper deficiency may be more common with people eating a high-processed food diet, but there are some people who actually have genetic disorders that affect their their metabolism of copper. So that includes things like Wilson's disease, and there's also something called idiopathic copper toxicosis. And so idiopathic means that it's coming from an unknown cause. So you may be someone who's prone to developing idiopathic copper toxicosis, and you would never actually know it until you expose yourself to an excessive amount of copper. But, you know, the people with Wilson's disease and these copper toxicosis issues, they may be at risk for the adverse effects of chronic copper toxicity at actually significantly lower intakes than the average person. So while a normal person might be able to eat two or three ounces of liver on a daily basis. Somebody with one of these diseases could actually 
easily go over their copper threshold with only a couple ounces a week. So from a nutritional standpoint, the biggest concern with long-term exposure to low doses of copper, copper is the is the possibility of liver damage. So copper is an oxidant and it's similar to iron. So having too much copper in your blood can add oxidative stress to your body from that excess of copper intake. And that's not something you want to be putting yourself at risk for. But the biggest issue with copper is that it actually needs to be properly balanced with zinc in order to not become toxic at the higher doses, even the ones that are not going over the the, uh, upper limit threshold of 10,000 micrograms per day. So this is because high zinc intake actually stimulates production of a protein called metallothionine, which binds certain metals in the diet and prevents their absorption by trapping them in the intestinal cells. And it specifically binds to copper more so than a lot of the other minerals. And that can help prevent the absorption of copper when it's eaten in excess. So if you're eating a zinc-rich diet and you end up eating a lot of copper, potentially more than you should be eating, you'll be better protected against toxicity compared to someone eating a low zinc diet. So beef liver does have some zinc in it, but not nearly as much as copper. And just to give you perspective on that, one ounce of beef liver has 1.5 milligrams of zinc, which is only about 10% of our daily needs. And if you compare that to copper, an ounce of liver provides 207% of our copper needs. So you can see that it's somewhat unbalanced towards the copper end of things. And you know, if you're only eating beef liver, to get your copper and zinc, then you're gonna be getting not enough zinc to balance that copper. So I would say in order to ensure that you're not putting yourself at risk for copper toxicity by eating too much liver, I would say that folks should aim to consume lower than the 10,000 micrograms per day upper limit. So I think I said that was two and a half ounces of liver per day, but if if you're only eating it once or twice a week, that just means that you need to be eating less than a pound of liver per week. And also, I think people should make sure they're including plenty of zinc-rich foods, including things like oysters, muscle meats from things like beef, lamb, chicken, and pork are high in in zinc, spinach, pumpkin seeds, and nuts are some plant foods that are high in zinc. And these are all foods that are found abundantly on a properly implemented paleo diet. So it shouldn't be too difficult to keep your zinc intake high, but um, you know, if you're eating a lot of liver, you're going to have to pay close attention to it. And lastly, I'd like to point out the fact that excess of iron intake from high organ meat consumption may also be an issue in the case of iron storage diseases like hemochromatosis. So if you have either heterogeneous or homogeneous hemochromatosis, meaning you either have one or two of the the genes for that condition, I would say that you would probably want to significantly limit your liver intake, if not avoid it entirely until you get your iron levels down to a a safe level. And this is because organ meats in general are high in iron. So this is going beyond liver. This can be talking about things like heart or I'm not sure about kidneys, but I, I do know that the organ meats tend to be higher in iron than muscle meats. So you need to be careful with eating these foods if you have high levels of ferritin or a high iron saturation, or if you've DNA tested positive for hemochromatosis, as as I mentioned, that can be either the homozygous or heterozygous type. Otherwise, I would think most people could probably eat about a pound of week, a pound a week of liver comfortably. But 
I do think that half a pound a week is probably all you would need to get the nutritional benefits and eating much more than that may not make a huge difference in your, in your nutritional status. And a lot of our readers or our listeners may agree with me that liver isn't exactly the most delicious food on the planet. So I don't want people to feel like they have to eat it daily or even more than say twice a week to reap the benefits. And I do think it's important that people remember that organ meats were only eaten anytime an entire animal was killed in traditional cultures. So, you know, if you go out and you, you kill a, a moose or a caribou, you're only getting one liver out of that animal and you're going to get hundreds of pounds of other types of meat. So those groups not only, you know, might not have had unlimited supply of, of liver to them, but they also had to share the organs amongst the group members. And that was actually a pretty traditional practice to make sure that everyone got a little bite of the organ meats, just to make sure everyone was kind of getting a, a little dose of nutrition. So even though organ meat's an important component of an ancestral diet, I think eating multiple ounces of it on a daily basis isn't something that would have happened in most hunter-gatherer societies simply due to the amount of organs available. So it's not really something that is based on, you know, if people are thinking about human evolution or traditional diets as far as guiding what they're eating, then eating lots of liver every day is not actually something that would have been possible in a traditional society. So, you know, that said, you can do it if you want, but I don't think it's necessary and it may be harmful for certain people. So you just have to be really careful about it. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, you know, I think that half pound goal and maybe not even a half pound, like even like six ounces or so is, is a really good goal to aim for, especially if you're someone who, you know, doesn't love organ meats. So you're trying to get up to that. What? Who doesn't um, love organ meats? Come on, Kelsey. <laughs> I know I have a lot of problems getting enough organ meats um, in my diet, so I can certainly understand other people having the same issue. Yeah. And I kind of, you know, when I was reading this question, what I, first of all, my immediate thought was the same as yours, like, wow, this is a total, you know, change of, change of pace coming from, you know, having been in hospitals before and working with people that, you know, on a standard American diet who eat zero organ meats. Um, but second, I was just wondering, you know, why someone is curious about eating a lot more than that. Um, you know, what's their, What's the reasoning for wanting to eat a ton more? And I, I definitely think you're right in saying that that's just not something that would have happened. You know, for our hunter-gatherer ancestors, they wouldn't have been eating organ meat probably every day at all. Um, and like you said, it just happens when they, you know, kill a whole animal and they're eating that entire animal. And if you think about the percentage that is organ meat compared to everything else, it's it's pretty small. Right. So trying to emulate that, I think, is probably your best bet. Yeah, and I just feel like sometimes people get this perspective that more is always better when something's healthy. Mm -hmm. And Unfortunately, I think it can actually lead to some problems, even, you know, even if you don't realize that the food you're eating is causing you problems. I've had clients before that if you just look at their diet, you might think that they're eating like the perfect paleo diet with all sorts of organ meats and fermented foods and just everything super nutrient dense and um, everything fits the bill for paleo. And then they're still having health problems because maybe, you know, maybe they're getting too much of certain nutrients, or maybe they're getting types of foods that are actually exacerbating conditions that they have. So something mm -hmm. like, something like bone broth that people might think is like, you know, an amazing food that everyone should be eating all the time. 
if you have, say, histamine intolerance, that can actually be a bad food for you. So right. I actually, yeah. I, I wrote um, a little like editorial article on my blog a couple weeks ago about how most foods could actually be considered gray area foods just because, you know, people vary in their tolerance and, um, you know, what what might be super healthy for one person, like liver is super healthy for a woman who's anemic or, you know, a woman that's not menstruating and wanting to, you know, increase their fat soluble vitamin intake through food. But then if somebody is, you know, homozygous for um, hemochromatosis or if they have Wilson's disease, then liver is like potentially a lethal food that they could eat if they're eating right. a lot of it. So I just think it's really important for people to kind of, um, keep things in perspective as far as when it comes to foods that you would consider a superfood. I think it's good to include them on a, on a, you know, semi-regular basis, but try not to go overboard. Try not to make your entire daily meal plan, like just a bunch of superfoods and not, you know, balancing it out with some foods that are either just providing macronutrients. So maybe you're just eating something that's pure carbs because you need the carbs, even if it's completely mm -hmm. nutrient deplete. So something like white rice would be a good example where, yeah, I'm not saying it's a nutrient dense food, but sometimes people really just need the carbs. So in that right. situation, it's a good food to eat. And, um, it's, you know, it does make me concerned when I hear people eating diets that are so intensely paleo and, and I put paleo in air quotes, if, you know, people can't hear that over <laughs> the radio that, um, you know, it's just, I, I, I'm concerned that if people are trying too hard to make their diets perfect, that they're actually going to be potentially causing harm, even just from a biochemical standpoint, not, not even considering the potential for eating disorders or for adrenal fatigue and that kind of stuff that can be exacerbated by an excessive attention to diet. So, yeah, I think, you know, something I see a fair amount of in my practice is people who they, you know, they pick out these certain foods that they think are super nutrient dense. And they're basically, like you said, kind of only eating those foods. And what that ends up looking like is them pretty much eating the same things over and over and over again. And something that you have to consider, you know, in the scheme of a healthy diet, that's really important is variety. If you're eating the same things over and over again, you're just constantly exposing yourself to the same anti-nutrients. You know, of course, we're trying to minimize things like that as much as possible, but there's still, you know, those kinds of things in everything. They're in vegetables, they're in everything we're eating. So by just eating the same things over and over again, you don't mix up what you're being exposed to on a regular basis and that in and of itself can cause some problems never mind that you know certain foods have uh, high amounts of particular uh, micronutrients that if you don't mix that up you know you're getting more of some things and less of others on a regular basis right and it's it's funny um i'm, I'm working with a naturopathic doctor in raleigh and she was telling me the other day that her recommendation is for people to eat 20 different varieties of plant foods to help ensure that they're feeding, you know, the best variety of their gut bacteria. And I had never mm -hmm. thought of it that way that like, you know, it's not just about eating vegetables. It's about eating different types of vegetables because maybe there's compounds in the Brussels sprouts that are going to feed one type of bacteria, but then, you know, the asparagus is going to feed another type of bacteria and then lettuce will feed another type of bacteria. So as far as keeping your your gut bacteria pretty diverse, the more diversity in your diet, the better. And that's actually something that, you know, would have been a pretty typical way for 
for an ancestral population to be eating because they had a lot more variety as far as the type of plant foods and even the the animal foods that they were eating they probably would have gotten a lot more variety than us so yeah I think I've seen you know statistics on how our food supply is you know so kind of dumbed down in terms of variety compared to our hunter-gatherer ancestors that even if we're eating a varied diet, what we would consider a varied diet today, it's still not even close to what they would consider as a varied diet. So if you're, you know, even within that, still eating kind of the same things over and over again, really consider mixing it up. It's so much better for you. And I think that's something that's really often forgotten in the paleo world. Yeah. I mean, this kind of went down a little bit of a a (laughs) sidetrack, but I think it's important just because- It is. You know, I think anyone that's anyone that's asking about eating more than, you know, a quarter or a half pound of liver a week is probably going to be focusing pretty heavily on those foods that are supposedly new, like superfoods, which I'm not saying they're not. But just because a food has a lot of nutrients in it doesn't mean you should be eating your entire diet made up of that food. So and it's funny when my when the naturopath told me about her recommendation for the 20 different types per week I was like I don't even think I do that because I end up buying yeah because I end up buying food for a week for myself and then you know maybe I get like a week worth of oranges and then like you know a bag of spinach and I mean and I made it I made a point of it the last time I went shopping to get like two turnips and two rutabagas and two carrots and I'm gonna hopefully cook them all together and make like a big mixed vegetable dish but it's something that you wouldn't even realize you're kind of just like eating a very uh, monotonous diet until you actually look at what you're eating. You're like, well, I've had kale for eight of my meals this week, so maybe I should use a different type of vegetable. Yeah, we get stuck in patterns. It's really, really easy. And I think unless you're like looking at your your food that you're eating right in front of your face for like an entire week, you tend not to realize that you're just kind of eating the same things over and over again. Right, right. And especially when you're eating a pretty specific diet like paleo, it can be kind of a comfort to Mm – stick to a, a general pattern, but, um, you know, I don't want people to freak out and, you know, get upset that they're only eating 10 vegetables or 10 types of vegetables a week. That is certainly better than what most people in this country are doing, but, you know, just keeping your diet as, um, you know, as high in variety as possible and trying to make sure you're not whittling down your intake into, you know, kale, butter and liver and, Right. You know, that's it because those are the best foods that you've come across. So absolutely. Anyway, so hopefully that makes sense to people. And, um, you know, liver is certainly a good food to eat. And I would love to know if any of you out there ever even considered eating more than a pound of liver a week. I think we should uh, give you some kind of medal. But um, <laughs> but now, you know, make sure you're getting some oysters with that liver if you're going to be eating that much. So. But anyway, that's all I have to say about liver for now. Uh, Maybe we'll have some more to talk about if anyone has any more questions. But anyway, thanks for joining us, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Ask the RD. And if you want to submit a question, you can do so through the link in the text above the podcast. So we may be changing up our podcast publication in the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for that. We'll announce it when we make the decision. But until then, you can find us here at Chris, Chris's website. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see you around next time. All right. Take care, Laura. All right. You too, Kelsey. Bye.